The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We are born mindful, and I always say this, I'm not teaching you anything you didn't already know. Um, It's the essence of your being, actually. Welcome to Students of Mind, the mental health podcast made by curious minds for curious minds. On this podcast, we the hosts are just like you, eager to learn more about the mind. Here, we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade. I'm Otavia. And I'm Alia. On today's episode, Otavia and Alia will be diving into the world of mindfulness with the help of our guest, mindfulness expert, J.G. Laroshet. All right, guys, take it away. Our guest today is my cousin, J.G. Laroshet. He is the founder and executive director of the Mindful Life Project, a Bay Area nonprofit that supports the mental and emotional well-being of underserved students, teachers, school leaders, and families through mindfulness-based social-emotional learning programs. Founded in 2012, the Mindful Life Project has served over 35,000 children. Recently, in the light of the current COVID-19 pandemic, JG has been sharing his mindfulness knowledge and practices through Instagram TV sessions and on YouTube. Welcome, JG, and thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. I've actually never thought to ask you this question, JG, and I don't know why. But why did you choose mindfulness? That's a great question. So first of all, I love the name Students of Mind. Uh, It feels very, very relevant, and I think we all can be students of our mind for a lifetime. Um, I first uh, started in education knowing that I just wanted to serve young people through as many different forms as I could. So as a coach, as a classroom teacher, as a community advocate, and specifically found love and and really became part of a a community here in Richmond where I just fell in love with the the work that I was doing with young people and families. And um, after working in education for about 10 years, I found myself knowing that like what we're doing in schools is oftentimes not what's needed most, right? I think when we talk about education as a whole, we often just think academics and and academics, they're great, right? They're important for sure. But unless you have the foundation, which is really that mental and emotional well-being, academics don't matter. And that's what I noticed with my students and, and noticed with myself. And uh, enough of trying to give others as much as I could and serve as much as I could, I burned out, right? And, and different factors of my life also led to anxiety and depression. And, um, and in 2011, it, it really hit a really strong wave uh, that carried me into a pretty dark place, right? Where I couldn't sleep. I couldn't really function properly. I was still trying to be a teacher, but it was, it was, it was a challenge just to go through the daily activities. And um, over those four or five months, um, I got so deeply enwound in kind of like this darkness of not knowing really a connection to my true self. Right? I feel like I disconnected. And I think I disconnected the mind, the body, and the heart in a way of survival. And I didn't know what to do. So I tried a lot of different things. So I did therapy. I did a lot of traditional Western medicine, right? And I also did alternative medicine and I did Eastern medicine. And a lot of things helped, you know, a little bit, but nothing helped enough, I'll just say, until luckily um, someone said that you should try to meditate. And my first meditation didn't go as planned, actually. It was, uh, I was told to, to sit still, look at a 45 degree angle, soft gaze, no thought for an hour. Left that session thinking never again. But the truth was that there was a lot of other meditations and one of them being mindfulness meditation. And truly, within a few days of practicing mindfulness, I, my suffering was alleviated. I was starting to sleep again, and I was feeling really integrated and healthy and just 
back to my true self, which which had been a while, right? I think that we always can evolve away from that true self or come closer to it. And um, so luckily, mindfulness shifted my life. And and within a couple of days, I said, hey, actually, this is working for me. Why don't I try to bring it for my students who often have a lot more trauma than I do, right? And how can I really support their well-being? And and so that's how Mindful Life Project was born. So from 2012, January 2012 to June, the co-founders are eight, nine-year-olds uh, at Coronado Elementary School in Richmond. And it was just a, a journey of mindfulness together and also thinking through what else can we do to release some of our trauma and stress that isn't just mindfulness. And that's where we started embedding different pro, uh, modalities like expressive arts, yoga, and performing arts in our programs at Mindful Life Project. Cool. So... You know, everyone suffers, pretty much everyone suffers at some point in their life from depression and anxiety. Why did you choose underserved children then mm-hmm. to question. focus on? For sure. So I'll just start with, yes, we all suffer. And I think that one of the messages that I was given um, when I was growing up, not just from my family, but also from society and schools, is that if you're feeling sad, you're feeling angry, you're feeling depressed or anxious or nervous, that that's a problem, right? And that problem then becomes kind of an enemy. And then because we have this relationship with suffering, especially when it comes to those emotions, that really is like avoid, neglect, push away, it starts to really compile. And I say that to say that when I was a seven-year-old growing up in in Berkeley, California, you know, seven, eight years old, I started having my first glimpses of like, wow, this country and this society is just so riddled by systemic oppression, violence, violence harm. I didn't really know how to name at the time, but I would just reverberate when I would see kids, especially African-American Latino kids being treated a certain way at school versus the way white kids were being supported or served and, and treated. And then in different journeys I had following my parents and their art teaching, I saw Native American reservations and I saw other places in the world. And I just started realizing like the two things that really called me the most was really around well-being and social justice. And so really the focus, I think, of mindfulness, and a lot of people say, oh, mindfulness is this kind of like feel-good thing for yourself. You know, it's kind of seen as kind of like yoga is now, which is kind of like a a white person's practice. If you're middle-income, high-income, it costs you $25 to do a class. Like, it's kind of a, 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 it's not a, it's it's something entitled, right? And um, when I think of mindfulness, I think of, it has to be woven with social justice. I think that mindfulness gets you to a point where you can really uncover who you truly are as a human being and also your interconnectedness with other humans. But specifically, how do we then act from a righteous place towards others and specifically dismantle systems that are harmful? Um, so for the way I see schools, oftentimes you have amazing humans right at these schools, but the systems are so broken and so... Uh, against what really our young people need, right? What our young people are looking for is a sense of belonging, a sense of trust, safety, right? Value, right? Voice. And when kids don't have that, then their stress and trauma gets escalated. And we see that kind of school to prison pipeline thing, right? Where kids are being pushed out at five, six, seven years old from their school. And now they're just trying to find that sense of belonging on the streets or with friends or, you know, a gang. And and then they're getting incarcerated and, and the cycle happens. So it's a long-winded answer to say that I believe that mindfulness without social justice is not mindfulness. And for us as an organization, we want to make sure that we support the most vulnerable. And until the systems are right, um, which is going to be a long time, but it's got to happen, and until the systems are right for our communities, we have to keep on supporting our most vulnerable in the best ways possible and create the best educational experience they can have because that's going to be really important for their growing and, and, and maturing as a human being. I have a quick question. Just out of curiosity, I'm wondering how, like, when you brought this practice to the first school, how was this received? Like, were people open to it or were they kind of weary about it? I'm just wondering how that transition from not ever hearing or practicing mindfulness to doing it at your school. Yeah, that's a great question. I, so I'll say there's two different um, groups of people I'll talk about with that answer, right? The first group is my kiddos, the eight and nine-year-olds that I had the luck of serving, right? Um, when I first brought the mindfulness practice, and, and it was really a mindfulness stillness practice, we call a mindful sit, right? Mindful meditation, mindful sit. Um, I'd only been practicing for two or three weeks, and I had really had no idea how to lead it, right? Um, but what I did know is that it was really helping me. And I thought, why not try it with these young people? Because that year I had a lot of trauma. Kids in that group, there's always a lot of trauma in the classes I taught, but that year specifically, 
there was a combination of a lot of trauma from their lives, but also my unhealthy mind, body, heart, lack of presence, overwhelmed by anxiety and depression was just like a perfect storm. So I came in like a little bit hesitant. Um, and I said, boys and girls, I have something I'm practicing. Uh, just been a couple weeks of it. I don't know if you want to try it, but I would love to offer it for you. And so that first practice kind of was the the real fast aha, right? Because I had them, we we're going to focus on mindful listening and mindful breathing, two of the practices, right, that we use in mindfulness. And I was going to do it for two minutes. I've heard from a lot of people say, don't do it longer than two or three minutes, especially for eight or nine-year-olds, or they're going to get riled up and not want to do it and not want to try it again. And truly those two minutes, the room was the most silent I'd ever been. The kids were all the kids' eyes were closed, which already for me was such a humbling honor to see. Like they closed their eyes, they were focusing. You could feel the essence of the energy of the room really calming. And they didn't stop. So three, four, five minutes later, uh, I told them they can stop whenever they want. I rang the bell again and they would not open their eyes. So they, and I think this is the key about mindfulness. We are born mindful. And I always say this, I'm not teaching you anything you didn't already know. Um, it's the essence of your being, actually. It's when you're born and you're curious about life in its truest form in this moment without layers of thinking what might happen wrong in the future or what happened in the past, right, and getting caught in that kind of wave. Um, so kids are very, very engaged in the practice. If you have a lot of trauma, it's going to take more practice, going to take more kind of entry points. But if we offer them an authentic adult that's helping them learn mindfulness, an engaging way of learning it, so a lot of call and response, a lot of what we do is also take mainstream hip hop songs and make them into mindfulness songs. So really making sure they have ownership of it. So kids right away have engaged and, and there's been resistance in some kids, but they, they buy in at a certain point. Uh, adults, I think is a little harder. And I think that's the piece that our school district here in West Contra Costa Unified, I didn't want to start a nonprofit. I was like, I'd rather just be a teacher on special assignment. And there was a no, a pretty quick resounding no. Um, and I think adults more and more are starting to see the way this country has in a way, um, on purpose, pushed stress and trauma and made people feel like they were worthless in many ways so they can get the best out of them, right? And the way that we see systems and the ways that we see kind of like stress being the norm. And when I found out the information that 78% of hospital visits are caused by stress in this country, that's a Harvard study, I was like, okay, underneath all this is what we really have to get. If it's in schools or it's in you know the government or if it's in companies or organizations, like underneath is the true need for us to really find the priority of mental and emotional well-being. So we're starting to see adults really shift in that and that's changed and been nice, but eight years ago is a lot harder. <laughs> that's interesting that adults are harder. I, I mean, I would figure that the kids would be harder. Yeah, but I mean, I will just, I'll, I'll just say this, the way I see it is what happens with our minds, and since we're talking about students of mind, right, we are wired for survival naturally, right? So naturally wired for survival. The more we live, we can get deeply wired more that way, right? So then it's like our stress response system is the norm, right? Which is what we've seen in a lot of adults, right? Their stress response system, that fight, flight, freeze response system has become, and that's what happened to me. And that's where anxiety and depression, because my wiring in my brain got to a point where it was really the back of the brain, the amygdala, that alarm system in our brain took over, it hijacked the rest of the brain. And now cortisol, adrenaline, and all those stress hormones are being shot out. Um, and so that's the reason adults are harder is because they've had more layers of conditioning and oftentimes have had to, for good or wrong, for good or bad, they've had to cope. And coping usually in this society is not a welcome sadness. Oh, how are you doing anxiety? Uh, and I told you this other day, Ali, it's like, that's what mindfulness is. Like, I love you anxiety just as much as I love joy, right? You're both very welcome here in this experience. And so that's the uncovering that you have to do with adults uh, that kids don't necessarily have, right? They don't have that part. So what is mindfulness and what are some examples of mindfulness? Great. So I'm going to simplify the definition that we use is mindfulness is paying attention on purpose without judgment. Right. And that's the key part is we're training the mind. We're doing this mental training to get into the present moment, but specifically without the judgment. As I said earlier, that negative bias, that inner critic, that strong sense of survival in the brain is there. So we're training it to not be in that kind of like this is right or this is wrong. So it's a deep acceptance. 
And then in terms of the practices, right? So that's the definition. As you can imagine, that's much harder uh, to do, to pay attention without judgment. Um, so then you have mindful skills or, or techniques. We call them mindful skills of the kids, right? And what we're looking at is how do we cultivate stillness practice, focusing in on those skills. So if it's mindful breathing, mindful listening, body awareness, mindful emotions, mindful thinking, heartfulness, or gratitude, those are the main practices. So how do we cultivate them in stillness, train up in other words, so that when we're in the moment where it's like, oh, I'm really distracted or I'm overwhelmed, um, or there's some trigger or there's some stress, that I can use one of those skills to stay in my prefrontal cortex where I can self-regulate, I can connect to this present moment in a healthy way and respond versus react. So that's really what we're looking for is how do we create space and time between a stimulus and our reaction instead responding skillfully, right? Both inwardly first and then outwardly, right? So the, the second part's a little harder, right? Like how do I navigate this experience of being a human inwardly and then how do I relate to my environment and the people around me in a skillful way also so as you said um being able to relate and kind of cognitively um you know answer all these questions about yourself and maybe others what are the benefits of practicing mindfulness yeah you know it's been it's been funny I always hear this question and, and the first thing that comes to me is well thousands of years of practice right Anything that's been done for thousands of years must be beneficial. But of course, we live in, in a society that really values science so and research and data, right? And so, yes, the benefits of mindfulness are tremendous. Um, you know, it, it's, it's it, the practice, and this is kind of the research shows around eight to 10 minutes of mindfulness stillness practice will start changing the architecture of your brain and the wiring of the brain so it can become active and engaged in that human part, that prefrontal cortex, and not so active and engaged in that amygdala reptilian kind of fight, flight, freeze brain. Um, and so the more we practice, the more we actually change the density, activity, and engagement of that prefrontal cortex and decrease and wean off that amygdala fight, flight, freeze response system. And the key there is that, yes, we need the amygdala if a car is coming fast at us, but if an emotion like sadness arises, the amygdala doesn't know the difference between that car coming and sadness, and it'll trigger the alarm in the same way. So the benefits of the practice are um, reduced symptoms of anxiety, reduced symptoms of depression, um, increased mood, uh, higher level immune system, um, increased sleep, right? Improved cardiovascular health, improved um, neurological functioning. I, I can keep going days and days. Increased attention, self-regulation, awareness. And, and it's really amazing how the science is, is catching up to thousands of years of practice um, and probably why at this point, you know, mindfulness is becoming something of a must have versus kind of like, oh, yeah, only certain people get that. Right. Um, to me, it's a human right. And it's something we're all born with. And, and the benefits uh, I've lived myself over the last eight years, all those things I just said, are it, my blood pressure used to hover at like 145 over 85, um, really high, even in my college years. And, and and never was on medication um, because I was still young enough and they were waiting it out. But now my blood pressure over, you know, I've been doing this practice for seven, eight years is, you know, 125 over 75 pretty consistently. And that's a significant increase. And that will, that's going to hopefully help me live longer, right? The less pressure that I have on the heart and the system, the longer I can live. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's amazing the benefits we see. What's the theory behind mindfulness? Um, and also, could you expand on how, um, it is occurring biologically. And I know you said the amygdala and then the prefrontal cortex as well, which is two interesting parts of the brain. Yeah, awesome. So I, when I hear the theory, so I want to first start with Vipassana meditation, um, which was the practice of the Buddha, um, is the practice that then in 1979 entered the healthcare system in a secular way, right? So that was when John Kabat-Zinn created mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is an eight-week course. And that's kind of the way that we've seen it being used for the last 30, 40, 50 years in the West. Um, and specifically when it comes down to the theory, I think, you know, there's this piece of like the, the practices I mentioned earlier and the essence of what mindfulness is. And I think the theory would be that we can become so in touch with our present moments that we become 
befriending and loving and compassionate to our inner experience in a way of really revolutionary self-love and self-appreciation, and then also for others, right? So this radical acceptance is a key that I accept whatever arises in me as if I'd chosen it to be this way, right? For me earlier than that, when anxiety would arise, like, no, this is the worst thing for me. I, worst thing happening in my life. It's my enemy. Like push, 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 resist. And it's that snowball effect. You do that long enough and it'll start growing and growing and get to the point where it'll explode, right? And that's kind of what happened to me in 2011, right? Where I had pushed it away long enough. Um, so I think the theory really is around radical acceptance of what's here now without judgment, right? And And just more than without judgment, deep compassion. The next piece that comes up for me is is the power of the science of it, right? So whenever I teach, if I'm teaching kids or adults, I'll, I'll use my hand as a model of the brain. I'll say, wiggle your thumb, tuck that thumb in the hand, and that's your amygdala, right? Our amygdalas are very important. They are our survival alarm system, right? And so what we know about strong emotions and what we know about any perceived danger or real danger, right? So the amygdala doesn't have rational thinking. That happens from the prefrontal cortex. We'll talk about it in a second. But when the amygdala has perceived danger, that emotion, real danger, that huge dog that's running after me, let's just say, right? Those two will not be differentiated by the amygdala. It will send the same signals, right, to the alarm. And the alarm will start sending signals to the rest of the body and brain and saying, hey, you got to go in a fight, flight, freeze, Right? And if I have an, a dangerous animal or if I have a dangerous situation in a car, then I do need the fight, flight, freeze, right? That's, that's going to help me survive. But if an emotion arises, I don't need the fight, flight, freeze, and actually it's more harmful, right? What we know about physical, emotional, and mental suffering is it's resistance to the present moment. So if I'm physically not feeling well and I'm resisting that, I'm like, oh, I don't like that feeling in my heart. I don't feel like that feeling in my body. That's suffering, Right. If I resist my thoughts, oh, I don't like those thoughts. Those negative thoughts are always here. That's, that's suffering. Emotions, same thing. So the, the, what happens is we can start to really change the architecture and the neural pathways of our mind so that we can actually not be in that kind of fight, flight, freeze. And just one thing that comes up when I talk about this a lot is the neural network, right? And the neurons in our brain that fire together, wire together. So I use this as an example. When, when I was about seven years old, uh, my dad always had this saying, if there's a problem, there's a solution. And um, that was something he kept on telling me. If you have a problem, use a solution. Find a solution. And one day I found my head uh, caught in a gate, slat gate, because I was trying to get a ball on the other side and it was locked. And I couldn't get out. And I'm yelling, help, help, right? And in that moment, my dad came out and saw me. And he thought he was teaching me a lesson. He's like, well, if you can get in, you can get out. And remember, if there's a problem, there's a solution. Right? So in that moment when I'm seven years old, now my neural network is firing all the neurons are connecting, and now it's really wired shut. JG, if there's a problem, there's a solution, and specifically, you better solve it yourself. So what happens there, and that's an example of then when the neurons fire in that way and your brain starts having those connections, it's like a really strong welded metal, right, together. And it's going to be harder and harder to get those thoughts, those emotions from being habitual to actually being able to say, hey, oh, yeah, there's a problem, but I don't need to solve it right now, right? How did that look later in my life? My wife come from teaching uh, kindergarten or first grade or kinder, a TK, and she had a problem. And guess what I would do automatically? I have a solution for you. And that's not what she wanted, right? So then it's like, oh, that's right. So we have these reactions, these you know, creatures of habit. So the neurobiology and just the overall, like our bodies hold stress way differently than an animal. So if a gazelle runs away from a lion within 30 to 45 minutes, it's metabolized, it's burned out the stress, and it's back in rest mode and grazing grass again. If you or I or any other human has stress, be it a real stressor, not that lion necessarily, but let's just say someone breaks into our car or an emotion like anxiety arises, it's going to be 24 to 48 hours where it's still embedded in my, my actual tissues and my DNA for a little while. And so if I have compounded stress, compounded trauma, then it's going to be a common, common connection that there's really patterns that go with that. So um, we have in mindfulness, we say mindfulness, compassion, and gratitude. We have three practices that are known to really change the architecture of the brain and as well as the interconnectedness of the body and mind together. 
So our next question is, how does mindfulness help people with mental illnesses? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna be very um, transparent where, you know, it's, it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm one who has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and, and definitely had depression, even though they probably didn't diagnose it. Um, two things that come up when I hear that, right? So mental health needs to be seen as the same as physical health, okay? So really important. So there's a stigma when we hear mental health, it's been really unhealthy and, and really harmful. It actually makes mental health even worse, right? If I ask someone, oh, what happened to your knee, right? They're going to tell me what happened to their knee. They're going to be fine. Like, oh, yeah, I had to get surgery on it and this and that. And then if someone has anxiety, depression, PTSD, anxiety, ADHD, or whatever mental health challenge, um, there's this kind of stigma that goes with it. So I, I just want to name that first and foremost, that we often become the emotions that we push away the most. They kind of attach themselves to us. So I'm going to take this from a non-clinical essence in a way of like mindfulness has an ability to change the architecture of the brain and body, which often, right, is connected to a few different things that, that have to do with our mental health. Okay. So when we talk about what creates our behaviors, right, and, and that would be part of mental health. You know, what they're seeing is that 30 to 40% of our behaviors are caused by our DNA, right? Now, that is a big deal because generational trauma or generational harm can very much embed itself in that DNA, right? But also generational resilience and generational strength can also be in there. And so if 30, 40% of our behaviors are from kind of our DNA, then you're like, what's the rest? And so the rest is around 30 to 40% is on our lived experience up to about a year or two ago, right? So like, what kind of schooling did I have? What's my family ecosystem? What community did I grew up in? What, what does the media say and portray about my identity or not? All these layers can then become our messages internally. And then you have about 20%, which is more in the last year or two. We can actually, our DNA, like all of like our cells at a cell level, like within a couple of years, we're like whole new beings, right? So, so that's partly why I think I always bring it down to like the last couple of years, a year or two, is like, how am I treating myself? Like, how is my inner talk going on in the last year or two? How much am I investing in self-care? What am I eating? What am I, who am I around? What are the messages from people that are around me? What's my economic status? All those things make up about 20% of our behaviors. And then only 10% is the healthcare system, which is funny because Kaiser uh, Health did this study. Um, so they're like, well, we need to invest in the other 90% because we only account for 10%. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a long way of, of sharing that we have the opportunity if we have mental challenges. So I try to stay away from disorders, right? Like that word of me, it just, it doesn't fit. So mental health challenges, mental illness, maybe we can change so much, but there's certain things that we can't also, right? And so for example, for me, anxiety and depression still probably are a part of my life, but it's different how I relate to it, right? So anxiety arises, but I welcome it now a little bit more and it doesn't kind of turn into a cycle. So I think I see that the science can show that we can reduce anxiety, depression, we can, we can change our well-being. But I also think that like when we look at it, there's going to be some aspects to our mental health that maybe we can't overcome just with mindfulness or therapy. And that's also okay. Just like if I have an ankle that's not working well and it won't work well for the rest of my life, it's not a bad thing. You know, it's unfortunate, but now I can live with it and adapt to it and befriend it. So I hope that's a, a, made a little bit of sense. <laughs> Actually, I have a more personal question that relates to what we were just talking about. I have a very difficult time when it comes to food. Only partially when it comes to quantity, but definitely when it comes to quality. I don't know how many people will understand what I mean, because I'm not really sure how else to explain it, but I will say it's come to the point where just the thought of food can give me anxiety. So my question is, do you think mindfulness can help with things like eating disorders? Yeah, and just thank you, Alia, for, for sharing that. and and. 110% for, 
for sure, okay, that not just mindfulness, but just if we look at what's happening with anything that we have a challenge with, if it's overeating or undereating, or if it's a relationship to our body and judgment around the body, right? So what's happening a lot of times when we talk about, um, if you just look at the basis of that, right? So for me, anxiety, for you, it's eating, right? For me with anxiety, it was, okay, this is the worst thing in the world. I don't ever want to have it. And because my dad's from Argentina, my mom's Israeli, and I have this kind of like, you know, in the Latino culture, like if you have anxiety or sadness as a man, like you're a weak person, right? Um, so then there becomes a narrative that we have. If it is strictly because we don't have appetite, that could be emotional, right? Or, right, we can just look at all the different layers. But if whatever it is that's that that thing that's coming up is that there's usually some narrative that's been created. And, it, and oftentimes I hate to say it, but a lot of times it's the media, right? So especially young people, they've been given, like especially with social media, they've been given these examples, quote unquote, of what we should look like and the way we should act. And if we want to be this, we got to be, we got to get this trend and we got, you know, all of that starts to create those neurological wirings we talked about so that you or anybody else, it's like, okay, I don't want to eat because if I eat, I'll get bigger, right? Just, just let's use that example. But then this, this fight, flight, freeze happens. And neurologically and biologically, we're starting to say eating's a danger. Does that make sense? Because if, I, if I'm worried that like the way I look or the way I talk is not going to be welcomed by others, that sense of belonging we talked about earlier, that's a threat to my existence. Is it really a threat? No. I give a, now I'm learning how to care less about what people think of me. It's taken a lot of work on that, right? Like a lot. I'm still not where I want to be. But what's happened is that we're looking for a sense of belonging, and then we have this idea of what belonging looks like. And unfortunately, because we're creatures of unhealthier habits and ha healthier habits, right? That's going to start to become really ingrained. And so I also want to take the personal out, right? So when I say I have anxiety problems, well, guess what? Like about another 2 billion people on planet Earth also have anxiety, right? So a lot of times we also isolate ourselves and we're like, oh, I got this problem and no one else has it like me. And so when we do that, guess what we're perpetuating again? The judgment mind, right? I'm the worst. I have this worst. I have a problem, right? Um so mindfulness will start actually allowing the full brain and integration to happen. So I don't go into that kind of neural pathway that's so connected. Food represents this, which represents that, which represents danger. Even though that's not, again, remember, remember the amygdala? The amygdala doesn't, if it's, you know, a big old donut in front of me, is that donut uh, dangerous to me? No. But if I have a narrative or story that someone has created or multiple people or media has pre created on me, then even in my subconscious, I might not know that not eating that donut because I'm worried about the calories or the sugar about what that's going to do for my body, right? Versus, oh, well, the donuts, food, it's not the healthiest. I want to be healthier. It has nothing to do with weight or anything like that. It's just what I want to put in my body. So that's a long way of answering, I think, for anything is that mindfulness gets us to a point where we don't have those automatic firings and neurons going wild of saying, threat, threat, threat. It's like, oh, yeah, it's food. I need to eat, like, I need to take care of my mind, my body and my heart on a daily basis. I want to like add something because I think it's interesting how you sort of explained that because I was actually in treatment for an eating disorder and we had certain days where we would practice mindfulness, but none of us, none of the patients really received it because it was like, we're going to practice mindfulness. Let's sit here for 20 minutes and try to be in the moment. And then that was it. And we were like, like, <laughs> what do no you expect to do? Yeah. So I'm just thinking about if I were to hear it explained in the way that you just explained it, I feel like it would be easier to like grasp because with meditation and mindfulness, it, especially if you're someone who struggles with anxiety it's hard to even think about being able to center yourself and be so focused on being right here. Right. And that's where I feel, and Jade, I'm sorry, because that's where I feel frustrated in the movement of mindfulness. We call it muck mindfulness. Like, you know, the fast food revolution is like, there's, it needs to be relational. It has to be relevant and it has to be true to like the, what the person's going through. So I think that that just brings up in my mind and heart, like, 
part of my job as a mindfulness teacher or an executive director of a mindfulness organization is to make sure that we always understand like the key for anything in life, if it's math, reading, mindfulness, science, or whatever is relevance. Like why? And we're so habitually trained in this society. It's never about the why. We just do. Be this, do that. And so it's hard to hear. um, And it's a little heartbreaking to hear that when there's an opportunity to really bring in something. And also like this whole idea of like clearing the mind or not having thoughts or just being centered. It's like mindfulness is more like the eye of the hurricane, right? It means that we can be present without being caught in it. But it's not about being no thought or no emotion. It's actually the opposite. like, welcome that thought. Oh, there is that thinking mind and there's my emotion. So that's another thing that happens. It's like, actually, it's the practice that actually we find refuge in ourselves, which is what we've been looking for. And we thought we had to find it through others. Like we're looking for refuge outside of ourselves. And really what mindfulness is, is finding refuge within ourselves. Hmm. Okay. So our next question is, how is mindfulness practice and what are some challenges to doing it? Yeah. So there's mindfulness meditation, right? Mindful sits, as we call it with our students, which is the focused attention on one mindful skill at a time, right? So we can sit for 5, 10, 15 minutes and we can focus on breath and sounds or then emotions and thoughts or heartfulness, compassion. Those are all skills that we want to cultivate so then we can live the rest of our daily lives with those skills available, So mindfulness and stillness is the practice to then be fully as present as possible without judgment through the rest of our day, right? We know about that 78% of hospitalizations caused by stress. We also know about 78% of the time we're lost in thought, right? And the thoughts, they're often about the future and then something happened in the past. And then, oh yeah, this moment right now, I'm thinking about it for a second. And then I go in the future and the past again. So it's learning to really train the mind to be present. But the moment it gets distracted, that's another mindful moment because the moment you notice distraction was mindfulness, right? So we don't judge it. Oh, yeah, I lost focus for a second or 10 seconds or a minute, five minutes, and and I gently brought it back. I was doing a – I don't know if you know who Jeff Warren is, but I was doing one of his practices, and he was talking about equanimity. And the way he described equanimity, which I thought was really interesting because I'm a very visual person, was like, you're sitting on the side of a road and you see a Greyhound bus drive past you and you don't want to look to the left and see it driving towards you and you don't want to look to the right and see it drive past you. You want to just like notice it and then move on. That's how he described the thoughts. But even with that, I have a really hard time getting my mind to just shut up like right. my mind I was thinking about other things even if it's not my life like I'll just start coming up with a story in my head not be aware of it do you have any advice about that so first and foremost thoughts are the opposite of a problem right so um, the way he expressed it I think is a good guidance the key though is that we're gonna probably jump on that greyhound at a certain point and we're gonna go on a little trip right and that's okay The best part is that when you find yourself on that trip, you then have the awareness to choose to go keep going or to jump off the Greyhound and go to another station, right? And and so that's what really mindfulness is. Like, okay, the mind loves to have all kinds of thoughts, thoughts that I sometimes choose, a lot of times don't choose, random, you know, memories as well as, you know, uh, having all kinds of creativity and stories. So that that's actually part of the practice. And one of the practices is mindful thinking. Um, and if I were to ask anybody, I said, when you have physical pain, what does your body do to that? And the answer is contracts, right? It contracts around that pain. And that's a survival mechanism, but it makes it more painful. And so the same thing is with thoughts. Like if I'm sitting and I'm focusing on breath or body awareness, or then maybe I focus on emotions and thoughts are recurring, Every moment that I noticed the thought happened, that was mindfulness, right? So we're going to do a, a three, four-minute practice just in honor of time, um, just a mindful sit. And we're going to do that exact thing. We're going to focus attention on sounds and breath. And the moment that our minds get distracted, those are magical mindful moments. That actually is that new seed that now you have more and more awareness. And that's the prefrontal cortex. So if you get distracted, no judgment, come back. And the good thing also is that the past is gone, so you can't change it, don't worry about it. The future isn't here yet, so don't get bothered by it. What we have is right here, right now. 
to, to begin before we get into stillness. Just find your body in the chair, cushion, couch, wherever you're at, and just rock back and forth, side to side. Just find some movement, right? You might have been sitting for a long time. And then just like a pendulum, let the movement start slowing down. And then just whenever you can, in the next 5, 10 seconds, find a full stillness in the body. And then we're going to practice mindfulness in the way that we do with our young people. So uh, you can repeat the following phrases I say in your mind, or you could say it out loud if you'd like to get into our mindful sit. The mental training of the mind, body, and heart. Repeat after me if you'd like. I've got my feet on the floor. I've got my spine in a line. Got my hands in my lap. Got my heart to the sky. And then allowing the eyes to gently close. And the reason we close our eyes in mindfulness is so we can let the external stimuli be external. We're going inward and we want to be able to focus on our inward journey. And eyes gently closed, softly closed can help us focus. If that feels uncomfortable, a soft looking face down a little bit, like 45 degree angle, eyes open gently is totally fine. But closing eyes can help us focus. We'll focus on the sound of the bell from the beginning to the end, just as the beginning of the mindfulness practice. Stay with sound as long as you can. Just the sound of the bell. Other sounds will come around. Thoughts will come. Just come back to the sound. Then just gently noticing the body in its entirety. And just find your contact points, your feet on the floor, your sit bones in the chair, your hands relaxed on the knees or the lap or maybe the chair next to you. And just allowing yourself to begin by focusing attention on sounds. Just tuning in to the sounds both close to us and far away. And then we might hear a sound that grabs our attention and fades away, and then another sound occurs. Inevitably, the mind will start thinking, and the moment that happens is not a problem, nothing we need to fix. It's a moment where we can bring mindfulness back. So we can notice a thought, two thoughts, three thoughts, and then gently come back to focus. Specifically on purpose, without judgment, right now to sounds. Taking a 360 degree view of the sounds around. Front, back, side to side. Maybe layering further out. Maybe you can hear sounds of cars in the distance. And then an emotion might arise or a physical sensation. Some comfort or discomfort might arise. And we just notice it without having to do anything to it. And then come back to the next sound. In the next 10 or 15 seconds, try to catch three or four new sounds you haven't heard yet. And now we're going to let sounds go in the background and just checking the quality of our attention. If it's really present, fine. If it's not, no problem. We're just cultivating this moment right here, right now. And let's move to the breath. Sound and breath are the two foundational practices of mindfulness because everything else is pretty impermanent. Thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, sounds, they come and go like clouds in the sky. But here we are with the breath. It's always right in the present moment. So just notice the inhale, the pause, and the exhale. Track the breath like it's the most important thing. It's your favorite TV show or favorite music. And just stay with the breath and its little details all the way through. So maybe you'll notice the belly rise and inhale, fall and exhale. 
the chest, expand on the inhale, contract on the exhale. Or simply at the nostrils, the cooler air on the inhale and the warmer air on the exhale. And just keep your awareness on one place, belly, chest, nose. May it be your anchor into the present moment. Just like a boat needs an anchor. We can anchor ourselves by focusing on the breath where it feels the strongest. So the breath is the strongest in the stomach, rise and fall, chest expansion and traction, or even at the nose, cooler air on the in, or warmer air on the exhale. And just another 30 or so seconds, tracking and watching breath. A thought occurs again, we gently come back. And that's what it is. It's like training a puppy. You'll just patiently call it back. No need to judge it, to be angry at it. Just notice, oh, there's a thought. There's 10 thoughts. There's an emotion. We can just mental note it, like we're sending ourselves a little text message. Thinking, 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 come back to breath. Emotion, 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 come back to breath. Whatever arises, we welcome, accept, and then come back into awareness. One breath, the in, the out. Right here. And to close the practice for today, this little micro practice, I offer to place the hands in the heart. And since we know the inner critic, that wiring of negative bias that a brain has is so powerful, we'll actually counter it with some self-compassion, some heartfulness. Just bring care, kindness, and love to yourself. Remembering that our authentic self, that being that was born, is there and at all times is unique and needed as exactly as it should be. And then just if you would like in your mind, just cycle through these sentences, repeat after me in your mind. Maybe happy, maybe healthy, maybe filled with peace, maybe filled with love. So again, happy, healthy, filled with peace, filled with love. And just notice the mind as we close this practice. Is the mind a little calmer or not? Is the body a little heavier and more relaxed or a little more rigid? No judgment. And just check into that emotional landscape. And as I ring the bell once, try to stay with the sound one last time, all the way till it's one little point of sound. And always, it's your practice. You come out as you please, just noticing if there's any areas that are tight and relax and move out and flutter your eyes open whenever you're ready. I turned my light off because <laughs> that, that's how I like to do it. So how can we keep our listeners updated on mindfulness and what's going on with you? Yeah, I would, I would recommend that, um, especially if people want to practice what we just did today, we have some free resources. I think we have about 10 different practices. We're going to have a lot more on our Mindful Life Project TV YouTube channel. So just Mindful Life Project TV on YouTube. And then we have a lot of resources on our website, some of the music, all of the music that we make. Um, and I do recommend there's some great apps out there as well that are free. Um, Insight Timer is a great app. Uh, and yeah, for us, we're serving around 10,000 kids right now, um, even through COVID-19, virtually, uh, usually in person through our programs. And um, if anybody out there has siblings that are younger or have schools that they think My Flight Project would be a good fit at, 
I'm always available, uh, jg at mindfullifeproject.org. And Alia knows how to find me too. And yeah, just good job. I would love to kind of follow and be be a part of anything in the future for you all that is helpful. And, and I look forward to these kind of opportunities because I think that mindfulness has somewhat of a kind of a false advertisement and let's decolonize it and let's get to what its essence is and let's bring it to communities. So um, yeah, just a lot of gratitude and hope this was helpful. Thank you, JG. Thank you for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to give another huge thank you to JG for being on the show today. Um, We chose to do this topic as our second episode because of the fact that we're living in such isolated times, and I feel like it's really important to have skills available in order to maintain a sound mind. So I hope listening to this, you can leave with a new option to self-regulate. Next episode, we will be providing even more insight into how to cope during times like these as we explore the effects that the current COVID-19 pandemic is having on the mental health of young people. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.